Our scripture today is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I am grateful to God, who I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived in first your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher and for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Teresa. I want to tell you about a cool baby shower that I once attended. You know how baby showers usually go, or at least the women in the room probably know how baby showers usually go. I don't, men don't get invited to baby showers too often, maybe more nowadays than they used to, but still not that often. But even if you've never been, you can imagine what happens. Friends of the expecting mother are there, friends of the grandmothers, along with various nieces and aunts and cousins, and sometimes a great-grandmother in this particular case of this baby shower, also a pastor, that would be me. Pretty typical baby shower agenda, lots of hugs and punch and sugar cookies in the shape of bassinets and cradles, uh, baby themed decorations. And after about 20 minutes of chit chat, we got down to the business of all baby showers, which is gift opening, gift opening. If you've never been, again, just imagine a circle of women sitting around the pregnant person at the head of the circle, and she opens gift after gift, mostly things that she had registered for at Target or Bed Bath & Beyond or wherever. And as everyone watches, the pregnant woman unwraps swaddling blankets and baby socks and onesies and footy pajamas and 
As each item is held up, the room says, ooh, huh, oh, that's so sweet, oh, precious, over and over and over and over again. Okay, so it was in the middle of this normal parade of new and precious things that something kind of remarkable happened. The pregnant woman opened a package from her mother-in-law, and she held up this simple little burp cloth that had uh, colored stitching on the side. And in that package was also a photograph of two women sitting on a couch sometime in the late 80s, embroidering that very same burp cloth. The photo was from the night before the birth of Mark, who was the father of the baby about to be born. The women in the photo were Mark's grandmother and great-grandmother, so the great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother to the little girl who was about to be born. So at that baby shower I attended, the burp, burp cloth was being passed on to the next generation, meaning that it soon was going to touch the hands of five generations of this family. Then the pregnant mother opened another gift from her in-laws, and this time she held up a beautiful, white, soft, hand-knitted baby blanket. It was made by a different great-grandmother of great-great-grandmother of the baby about to be born, also originally made for the baby's father, Mark. That blanket had swaddled Mark and all his sisters, and then had been put away carefully in a trunk until the day when the first of the next generation was born and was gifted to her. Then the pregnant mother opened another gift from her in-laws family and this time there were two books in it. One was called Baby's First Book and it was a book that was read to the father, Mark, by his grandmother. And then there was a Dr. Seuss book that was a gift of the baby's great-grandfather. He was a state representative in Kansas for a time and as part of his job, one day he visited this elementary school classroom and read to them Green Eggs and Ham. And then all the kids in that first grade classroom signed that book and they gave it back to Ralph and he kept it and he gave it to his first great-grandchild. Now, do you think that that baby, who's now in elementary school, do you think she's growing up with a strong sense of family? Do you think that baby is going to understand something about where she comes from, about what her lineage is? Considering all that history that was given to her before she was even born, how could she not grow up with this rock-solid understanding that she's Mark's daughter and Suzanne and Mark's granddaughter and Judith and Ralph's great-granddaughter? She's going to know, and she knows to whom she belongs. I know also that that baby, from the very moment she was born, she understood how very deeply she is loved. She's growing up with this assurance of who she is, where she belongs, and that's going to shape her life and provide her immeasurable security. It's awesome. You know, it's not that different, actually, from the kind of assurance that the writer of the scripture called Second Timothy claims for himself and he offers to Timothy. Now this book, 2 Timothy, we don't know exactly why it was written. We don't know what the trouble was in the church, uh, why the writer sent this letter to the young disciple, but he meant it to encourage and strengthen Timothy and the community in which he lived. He wanted them to, to survive, but also thrive in the midst of some kind of difficulty or trouble they were having. And what, what he does to start out here in this first chapter is he reminds Timothy of the incredible faith he's been gifted by his family. He says, remember, you're Eunice's son. You're Lois's grandson. 
you have been given so much by way of example and by way of love. And then not only that strength of family, but the writer also shares with Timothy his rock-solid understanding and confidence in God. The writer himself, he suffered some kind of hardships, beatings or imprisonment or just the rigors of travel in the ancient world or illness, whatever. His, his difficulties have been his confidence remains unshaken. He says he relies on God and he knows that he is called according to God's purpose and God's grace. I know the one in whom I have put my trust, he says. I know the one. And he's sure, he's absolutely sure that God will be faithful. God will be faithful to him. He says, the message translation of the Bible translates it this way. I have no regrets. I have no regrets. I couldn't be more sure of my grounding. The one I've trusted in can take care of what he's trusted me to do right to the end. God can be trusted right to the end. I have no regrets. That's some confidence. That's some assurance. That's the kind of confidence that keeps a person going despite whatever obstacles are in their way at the moment. It's the kind of assurance that helps people look to the future with hope. Timothy's being told, remember the strength of where you came from and remember the God in whom you trust on whom you stand, the God who saves you. It's that same God that your mother trusted in and, and that your grandmother trusted in. God saw them through and God is going to see you through. That kind of generational faithfulness, it is an incredible gift. It also happens to be one of the strongest gifts of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. Did you all realize that we are turning 160 years old as a congregation this year? 160 years old. Y'all, that is old. We are going to celebrate that a little more officially in October, but just stop and consider it with me for a minute. This morning, 160 years old. The beginning of St. Paul's United Methodist Church, us right here, this community, started in 1861. 1861. That happens to be the year that Kansas was admitted to the Union as a state on January 29th. As a free state, thank you very much, which was a big deal considering that same month, January of 1861, four states in the South voted to secede from the Union. And in April of that same year, 1861, the Civil War began with the attack on Fort Sumter. In 1861, the country as a whole uh, a slim majority of people still lived on the farm, 53%. But I suspect around here in the Nebraska Territory, <laughs> the number was a whole lot higher than that, and most people probably still lived on the farm. Also in 1861, the majority of people, almost all people in America spoke English as their first and their only language, but here, our ancestors in the faith, the community who founded St. Paul's, they spoke German. And they continued to worship in German, at least in part, for like 60 more years. Things were starting to change around the country in 1861 with the advent of more manufactured goods. But in places like Sarpy County, I'm pretty sure people still mostly ate what they could grow or raise on their own farms. They wore clothes that they could sew at home. They farmed with horses. They walked a lot. 
They lived lives of hard and continual work. They had big families. They dealt with a lot of illness that we don't have to worry about. A third of all children in the 1860s died before age five. Average life expectancy, 42 years old. I beat that, many of you have too. A few of those hardworking families, three of them to be exact, who had settled here in a place that was not yet formally called Papillion, they came together to worship God. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to trust him with their lives. So during the summer of 1859, a German-speaking Methodist pastor from Omaha began preaching here in the vicinity of Papillion and three families, those of Andrew Yui, Fred Fricke, and William Fricke, People who had located here just like two or three years previously, they opened their dugout homes for these worship services. And then in 1861, they united formally into the church and they were served by pastors that were sent from the Omaha mission of the Methodist church. Now it wasn't long until there were enough people attending those worship services that they had to move out of their houses and into a building. So they chose a nearby school and they gathered there until 1875. In that year, 14 years after they first started to meet, their membership had grown to 50. Whoa! So the congregation decided it was time to build their own building. Y'all, this is not a story of quick growth. This was not an overnight success. It took 14 years to get the first 50 members of St. Paul's. It's a story of faithfulness. It's a story of consistency. It's a story of holding fast to their purpose and trusting God. Well, in 1875, a piece of land was donated uh, here, right here, here at the corner of Jackson and Grant Street for that first church building. And St. Paul's has occupied this corner of the world ever since. By 1917, the church decided it was time to do all of its business uh, and activities only in English. And their membership climbed to 150. They built a new building. By the early 50s then, the church had grown following World War II and it was decided once again that the building was too small. So in February of 1953, they held a final worship service in the wooden building and then the congregation temporarily moved over to the American Legion. And then they dismantled that old wooden church, beam by beam, and they built a new one in the same spot, constructed of stone. And that's part of the building that we still have today as our core. That's the chapel and uh, part of the narthex and upstairs classrooms and that old creepy basement built in 1943. And if you don't think it's creepy, you just go down there with the lights off and you tell me what you think. On Thanksgiving Day, 1953, just 10 months after they vacated the old building, the first worship service in the new building and the chapel over there was held, even though the building wasn't quite finished. <laughs> a group of faithful members worked until the wee hours of Thanksgiving morning to set the pews in place and make sure that everything was ready for worship. Now, one, two, three, something like that of our members today were around to see that 1953 building open which means that 99% of us here came later. We inherited this place from the hands and generosity of generations before that built it. 
That includes the addition of the fellowship hall in 1978. And for many of us, we came to the congregation even after this big, beautiful sanctuary was built in 2005. We have inherited this place from the faithful generations who've gone before. And along with this beautiful building, we have inherited their spirit of faithfulness and dedication and service and hope, their purpose that has sustained this congregation for the last 160 years. Now, if you want to know more about the history of the church, I'd encourage you to take a walk down this west hallway sometime. There are cabinets full of uh, memorabilia from our 160-year-old story, dozens of scrapbooks that you can take out of the cabinet and leaf through and see some of the goodness that's happened here in the name of God in the last 16 decades. We're so grateful for the past. I am so grateful for the past. And when we feel that gratitude, we also look toward the future so a few months ago, I told the church council here at St. Paul's that I thought it was time for us to write a new mission statement. It's not that we have a new mission. No, our mission has not changed in the last 160 years that we've been a part of Papillion, but I felt it was time for us to say it anew to ourselves. Time to find a new statement to express who we are and what we're about. Now, there's nothing magical about having a mission statement, but having a clear one, having one that's understandable, is important to any community, especially a church, because it reminds us who we are. It reminds us why we're gathered here. You know, we're not just here because we have some free time on Sunday morning. We're not just here because we're looking for some new friends. We're not just here because we need a place to wear nice clothes or fancy robes. Right? We're here for a purpose. We are here for a God-given mission. We are here because God called us here and God has given us a purpose. God has given us a way to be faithful, a way to grow, a way to serve our community. God wants us here on this corner of Papillion. And we need to have a way to talk about that, a way to remind ourselves of that, and a way to let new people know who we are and what we're about. So, to help us frame this new statement, Church Council did what all Methodists do. We formed a task force, right? We had a committee, but it was actually full of great people. And in the late spring and summer, we met and the six or seven of us talked about what's best about St. Paul's. We gave you all a congregational survey that you filled out to help us nail that down. And we talked about what makes us unique and what makes us distinctive about what's happened at St. Paul's through all these years and what we hope will happen in the future. And we came up with this short statement that was adopted by church council last month, and here it is. Generations of disciples reflecting God's love to our community and the world. That's our mission. It's a short statement, but it is packed full of meaning and direction. It really is. And I gotta tell you, I'm a big fan of this sentence. When I reflect on it, it gets me excited about who we are and what it is that we're doing together here. Now we're gonna be talking about the second and third part of that statement in the next two weeks, but of course today I'm honing in on the first part, generations of disciples. Generations of disciples. We have been here a really long time and that's a big deal. You guys, we are older than the city of Papillion. When those three families started meeting for worship with that traveling preacher start, uh, stopping by, Sarpy County had something like 
1,000 residents. In the last census in 2020, Sarpy County has 190,000 residents. So imagine the amount of change that's happened here at Saint, and St. Saint Paul's has been a witness to it, has been a part of it. We have had so many great leaders worship here. So many people grow with God here. So many people serve the community here. We have raised generation after generation of children through our Sunday school classes and our youth group. We have been given incredible strength by the ones that have gone before us. And you know what? We're still doing it. Even in the middle of this crazy pandemic, we are still doing it. We are still raising up a generation to follow Jesus through our Sunday school classes in our youth group. We are still a place for leaders to come and worship God, to grow in faith, to serve the community. And when you come to St. Paul's, you're going to see babies, and you're going to see people in their 90s, and you're going to see everything in between. We are generations of disciples reflecting God's love to our community and to the world. So today, I hope that you celebrate this with me, that you see the strength of our heritage and our present congregation that spans the generations. My challenge to you this week is to continue celebrating the generations of this congregation by connecting to somebody that is in a different generation than you. That's my challenge, and I'm serious about it. I really hope that you'll take a minute to do this in a new way. You can choose somebody older than you or someone younger than you. Chances are there are people on both sides of you. It might be someone that you know, or it might be someone that you recognize but you've never really talked to. Take a moment to introduce yourself to them and then ask them a question to hear how they see God and what they love about St. Paul's. You could ask them, hey, what'd you really like about worship this morning? Or you might, if it's a kid, you might say, hey, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? You might ask them, what Bible story do you really like? Or say, why don't you just tell me what you're praying for this week? Ask them about their faith and know that as we continue to build our bonds among generations here, we strengthen our community, we do honor to those who have handed us such a rich heritage, and we prepare ourselves for the work that God has for us to do in the future. For today, we say thank you to God for generations of faithfulness. May we continue their legacy as we walk in the way of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>